0: As we were singing that song, it dawned on me something I've always not always known, but i have known for a long time, but often forget and don't fully realize is that as the people of God, we would have no hope, no reason to sing as we just did if it was not for the cross. So stop and reflect on that today. We are going to be going before the Lord's table and remembering the price for our forgiveness, which was so great. For without it wouldn't matter how righteous of a life we lived at all, how much we loved God or tried to appease him, none of it would be enough. And so we remember that his mercy is more than our sins. So our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Let's read our scripture reading today. We're finishing up the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 18, let me get myself situated here rightly, uh, beginning in verse 21, the Holy Scriptures read, with his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay back his debt. So also my heavenly father will do do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You pray with me and for me as we begin. Father, we come before you understanding that the stakes of forgiveness are high. For all of eternity weighs in the balance. And so, Father, there are so many paths out there promising forgiveness, promising a restored relationship to you, but we know that there is but one path that leads there, and it's the path of the cross. Father, because of the cross, we can be forgiven, and so we praise you for that. But also we know that you call us then as the forgiven ones, to be forgivers of others who sin against us. And so, Father, we struggle at this. We fail at this regularly. And so help us to see forgiveness through your eyes. Help us to see that all sin is ultimately against you. As David cried out after his egregious sin, against you and you only have I sinned. So help us to recognize that. Help us to live in the forgiveness you've purchased for us. Help us to be peacemakers Who go out and seek peace. Not to be looking for a false peace, but for a true peace, which comes through your word as we follow and obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It all started over a pig. In 1878, Randolph McCoy accused Floyd Hatfield of stealing one of his hogs. And when the dispute couldn't be reconciled between them, it went to the courts. But then during the trial, it turned for the worst when one of the star witnesses, a McCoy, who had broken the family ties and allegiance and married a Hatfield, becoming a modern-day Romeo and Juliet, stepped forward to side in court with the Hatfields. But this was much too much. And so out of his fierce anger and loyalty to his family, Sam McCoy then shot this fellow family member of his to death for such a great family betrayal. Things didn't end there, though, as this triggered off a series of attacks and counterattacks, which led to, as what we know today, one of the most bloodiest feuds in all of American history. For example, in 1882, three McCoys got into a ruckus on election day with two of the Hatfields, which ended up being a fight, which then resulted in Ellison Hatfield in that fight being stabbed 26 times before he was finally shot in the back, leading to his death three days later. So in response, Ellison's brother found the three McCoys who were responsible, and he tied them up, blindfolded them, before dragging them into the woods where he shot them to death in his retaliation. And so in response to that response, the Hatfields struck back again, ambushing the the McCoys, uh, their whole homestead, and lighting it on fire, which became known as the New Year's Day Massacre in which two were killed, including one of the daughters who was caught, sadly, in the crossfire. And to make matters worse, her mother was badly beaten when she tried to step in and help her dying daughter. And so after years of back-and-forth retaliation, the feud finally ended with a death toll of at least 13 people who lost their lives over something so silly as a stolen pig. And yet it all could have been avoided. How? Through one word, forgiveness. Forgiveness would have prevented all of this, all of this bloodshed, all of this tragic loss, if they had but been able to forgive as they should. And yet, so often even as Christians, if we're not careful, this same attitude of vengeance and unforgiveness can seep into our hearts, which results into devastating results. This is why Paul writes in Galatians 5:15, he says this, "But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by each other." When it comes to forgiveness, though, If you've ever tried to do forgiveness, especially in a situation where you've been seriously harmed, then you know that it's an easier said than done sort of thing. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things for us, and yet, if we can forgive, it's one of the best things for us. Though it's one of the most difficult things for us to do, if we can forgive, it's one of the best things for us. Which is why in Matthew 18, Jesus calls his servants to engage in the extreme, difficult, but healing act of forgiveness. How? When somebody harms us by going around and simply muttering the phrase, okay, I forgive you, whatever, just let's not talk about it anymore, I forgive you, it's done. Is that the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about? No, not at all. Forgiveness is not like turning on a light switch. It's actually a whole lot more like starting up electricity inside of your heart, which is painful because I don't know about you, I don't like to get shocked. And yet, this is extremely important because this pain of forgiveness actually leads to healing. And so when someone has hurt us, a defibrillating shock with the paddles of forgiveness is exactly what our hearts need if we're going to experience the healing that comes through forgiveness. If we're going then to experience the healing that forgiveness brings, it's going to require three things, and here they are. It's going to require first patience, second pity, and then third payment. For the past several weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 18 where we have seen that Matthew 18 is a package chapter. You can't just arbitrarily pluck out little verses here and there and be like, oh, look, throw this on a coffee cup. Let's apply this to our life. No, it's, an, it's, it's telling a big overall narrative. It's making a big point for us. And so we have to look at Matthew 18 in its context. We have to look at it in its entirety. And in Matthew 18's entirety, what is it showing us? It's showing us what it looks like to be in the family of God. And you remember several weeks back, how do we even get into the family of God? By doing a bunch of good moral things? By saying prayers? No. Humility. What kind of humility? What was the illustration Jesus gave? Well, he had a child come up there and sit on his lap. He said, like this. This is the kind of humility you must have if you're going to even enter the kingdom at all. And then, once we enter by humility, it makes perfect sense and that we continue on in that humility as we live as humble brothers and sisters within Christ's family. Matthew 18 shows us how we enter it, as we said, humble little children. It also shows us, though, how we protect our brothers and sisters. And we saw that a couple weeks ago, which is by removing stumbling blocks, which means we must gently rebuke each other's sin. And then now today it shows us how we forgive each other once that rebuke has been issued and forgiveness or repentance, I should say, uh, has been has has occurred, and so this is the context. This is the context of the passage we're looking at this morning. It's a situation of going after strange sheep. Remember, we looked at how, you know, the good shepherd leaves the one to go after the 99. Well, here's a situation where that one returns, the sheep returns. And so out of that, that's where Peter's question comes from, where he asks, Okay, Jesus, I have to forgive this wandering sheep who came back, who sinned against me. How many times, though, do I have to do it? And so, Jesus' response to him was not just once, not just twice, but seven times. Seven times seven, actually. And Jesus here, he's not saying, okay, some of you are doing the math, and you're saying, okay, 490, I'm good. At 490, you know, fool me once, fool me twice, fool me, and you keep counting up till 490, then finally shame on you, and then I can be done with you. That's not Jesus' point. He's simply using big numbers to make an obvious point, which is simply this. If your brother or sister repents, then you forgive. The end. That's all there is to it. If they repent, you forgive, full stop. And this is exactly what Luke's account is talking about. See, Luke is a parallel account to what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 18 today. And it gives us some other details that we don't see in chapter 18. Here's what it says. If he, being your brother or sister, sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive them. And notice it doesn't talk anything in these passages at all about feeling forgiveness, does it? Forgiveness is a choice. It's a choice to treat the person, not how you feel, but how God calls you to treat them. Now, there's several things about this verse, actually well more than that, but one of the things that stands out here is just how difficult this task is that Jesus is calling us to do. Forgiveness is hard. It's really hard, especially if you've been really hurt by somebody, and especially if that's happened over and over again. And so Jesus is calling us to do the difficult task of forgiveness. Forgiveness. I don't know about you, but if someone sins against me once or even twice, it's a whole lot easier to forgive them than if they've done it six or seven times. Anybody else experience that? The more they do it, especially in a shorter period of time, my human nature doesn't want to forgive as much. And yet we are supposed to anyways. And the thing is, here, here's why this works this way. The reason that I don't want to forgive by the sixth or seventh time is because that's where my patience pretty much stops out at. Does God's patience top out at six or seven times? No. Praise God it doesn't. His mercy is more. Though my sins are many, way more than six or seven times, his mercy is more. And he calls us into that same kind of mercy. And if we're going to have that, we have to have great patience. Jesus calls us to the kind of patience that puts up with a brother's sin, not just once, not just twice, not just thrice. I'm going to stop there because I don't even know how to say four in that way. But seven times. Seven times seven—it's a whole lot. It keeps going, perpetual forgiveness. What Jesus is saying is that our forgiveness doesn't have limits on it. There are no limits. You just keep offering forgiveness so long as our brother and sister in Christ come and repent, asking for it. You must give it. Well, now here's an important question: What if they don't repent? Does that mean that you can go back to looking? To, does that mean you can go back to using their picture on your wall? as a dartboard does it no not if you want the healing that forgiveness brings that is and so if they don't repent what are we obligated to do what is the context of matthew 18 saying we're supposed to do if they don't repent just wash our hands say, oh well forget it you know they didn't repent i you know i guess i can't forgive them not inviting them over anymore no you have to rebuke them You have to go to them. And that's what we saw last week in Matthew chapter 18, which is the church discipline passage, which tells us to do what? Go and tell everybody and their brother and share prayer requests about this person's fault? No. Go to them alone. Don't go to your spouse. Don't go to your pastor. Don't go to your best friends, neighbor, anybody. Just go to that person and be reconciled to them. Bring up their fault in a loving and gracious way. And this is the exact same thing that Luke tells us to do in the verse right before this. Pay attention to yourselves, Luke says. Okay, so in Luke's account, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's the same thing we see in 18. It's the same thing. Do you see the picture then here that's being given to us in both Matthew and Luke's account? It's showing us the biblical pattern for conflict resolution and what it looks like. It's showing us what we must need in order to chase after resolution. And one of the things we need is great patience. Now, when it comes to all this, there's two ditches, just like about everything in life. The first ditch that we want to avoid is the ditch that says that we can forgive without repentance. You can't, okay? Now, I realize this might set some of you on on edge here, so if it does, just hang in here with me a minute. We're going to come back to this during our third point, but if that rubs you wrong, if you disagree, bear with me a bit, because I don't think you're going to by the end. Okay. So this word repentance, what does this mean? It's a word in the Greek that simply means to change your mind. Right? It's to change your mind. And so think about this with me. If my fellow brother or sister in Christ is engaged in sin, if they refuse to change their mind and turn away from their sin, answer me this, is it loving to treat them and pretend as if they did? No. No, it's not. Which is why right before this passage, Jesus outlines the process of what we call church discipline, which is when a brother or sister in Christ refuses to repent of their sin. It's telling us what we're supposed to do as the church, what we're supposed to do as their brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we go after them, even to the point where we temporarily, Lord willing, cast them out of the family. We hand them over to Satan, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so that though their body might be destroyed, their soul might be saved. This is a very important process. And so if they refuse, we do not forgive them, not because we're lacking in love, but precisely because we have love for them. If you continue to sin against me, and I go all Minnesota nice, and I just forgive you, I don't even know what that means, but let's just say I do. I say, oh, I forgive you. No, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. The truth is, biblically, I'm not being loving at all. I'm being an unloving, selfish jerk, regardless of how nice I think I'm actually being. Because true love has great patience and continues to say the hard but much-needed things, no matter the social cost. And make no mistake about it, if you treat conflict the way the Bible tells you to treat it, you will, at minimum, experience a temporary loss of peace. Have you ever rebuked somebody and found out that they weren't thrilled about it? How about all the time? And if you follow your human nature, if you respond without great patience, what are you going to do? You're either just going to blow up and say, forget you, or you're just going to be, oh, I'm sorry, I brought it up. You know, let's just be friends. But is either of those responses loving? No, not at all. As we saw back in Matthew chapter five, as followers of Jesus, we are peacemakers, not peacekeepers. That's a huge difference. Understand the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? Peacekeepers, see, what they do is they say, no matter what, I'm going to chase after peace. That's the thing we have to have, even if it's a false peace. That's what we're going for. But that's not what a peacemaker does. A peacemaker says, I'm going after true peace, biblical peace, no matter if that brings up a hostile situation. And so if we want the healing then that forgiveness brings, if we want this true peace that Christ offers, we have to embrace the pain of the cut. A good friend of mine's son, he's a junior this year, and he's uh, the star running back for his football team. I just found out this last week that he blew his knee out entirely and is done for the season. And as sad as he is, he's embracing short-term pain, which comes by way of surgery and physical therapy, not because he loves short-term pain, but because he wants to receive the long-term healing that he needs in order to experience the joy of not only playing next year during his senior year, but also the joy of being able to walk for the rest of his life without excruciating pain. And so too, church, must we embrace the painful remedy the Bible gives for relational conflict if we want to experience that kind of healing. Without a doubt, this remedy does include enduring relational hardship with great patience. It requires a patience that lovingly refuses to forgive when repentance has not occurred. And it does so because it realizes that that kind of forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that is offered when there's no repentance, is actually not only a fake forgiveness, but it's a selfish in nature kind of forgiveness. Think about this. How many times do we engage in conflict with one another when a believer sinned against us and we decide, okay, we've had this conflict. I need to rebuke them. I need to go back to them. But you know what? I'm just not going to do it. And the real reason we decide not to do it isn't for their sake, it's for our sake, because we don't want to have to deal with the conflict. It's uncomfortable. Unless you're a psychopath narcissist, it's an awful thing. Nobody likes conflict unless you're crazy. And so often we will convince ourselves that we're not going to pursue the conflict, well, because we're going to pray for them. Remember, you know, last week we talked about how some people say, well, I've just been praying for them for the last 36 months, I haven't found the right time. Well, the right time was 36 months ago. And the reason that you're often delaying, we often delay, is because of selfish motives. To not go to our brother and sister and pursue true biblical rec- reconciliation is unloving. And not only is it unloving, but it's actually to stand there idly by as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ run, right, run straight into a stumbling block that we knew about and we could have pointed out to them, but we didn't. Why? Why? Fear man. Well, if I point out, they might, you know, they might have just hit their stride on this race, and if I, you know, if I interrupt them and point out, hey, you know, come over this way, you're going to hit that thing, they might get mad at me, so I'm just going to be quiet. Maybe they'll notice it, maybe they'll skip right over it, it'll be fine. No, it's unloving. We must not only be a stumbling block, but we must point out stumbling blocks in each other's lives. And if we don't, make no mistake, we do bear some of the responsibility for the disaster that ensues. See, here's the thing. If my wife gets attacked and mugged at the grocery store, I'm going to be upset with whoever, greatly upset with whoever mugged and attacked her. But let's say I find out that you were at the grocery store in your car recording the whole thing on your phone, and you didn't do a single thing to stop it. Not only am I going to be upset with the attacker, but you better believe I'm going to be coming to have a direct conversation with you trying to find out why you hate me and her so much that you just sat there doing nothing to prevent such a horrible thing. And so, no, there are times when it comes to conflict that we do withhold forgiveness until there is repentance. Not because this is the payment that our ego deserves, but because of our great love for the person, for the brother and sister in Christ. And we do so because of our great patience for them. Colossians three thirteen. Here's what it says: Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive how, as the Lord has forgiven you. Right? That's what it says. Make no mistake about it. The Lord's forgiveness does it. It absolutely comes with conditions attached, doesn't it? Yes. Otherwise, we'd be universalists who believe that everybody goes to heaven, and we don't believe that, do we? No. The conditions of forgiveness require repentance, not only for entering the family of God, but for operating within the family of God. See, even if, even if as a child within the family, if you chase after sin, your relationship with God is temporarily severed in a very serious way. Not that you've been cast out and you're no longer one of his children. That will never happen, praise God. But your relationship with him has been severed in terms of immediate access to him. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it harder to forgive my fellow Christians than it is to forgive unbelievers. Anybody else struggle with that? I do. Because after all, if you think about it, Christians ought to know better. Unbelievers, it makes total sense, right? Like they're pagans. Pagans are going to do what pagans are going to do. You don't get mad about that necessarily. But when Christians who've been redeemed act like unchristians, whew, that's a whole different ballgame sometimes, isn't it? That's hard. And yet, what does Jesus tell us to do here? Does he say if the unbeliever sins against you, forgive him? No, he says if your brother sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And yet, how many professing Christians have been sinned against by a brother or sister and resolved to say, never again. (laughs) Never again will I allow myself to be so vulnerable as to be hurt in that way. And so, yeah, maybe they still come to church. Maybe they haven't you know, closed off that entirely. But when they come, they refuse to make themselves accessible. They refuse to make themselves vulnerable to the flock, to the body of, Christ, of God, of Christ, the church, because they don't want to experience the same pain that happened last time. And yet, what if Christ had responded that way to us? We would be entirely without hope. We would have no hope whatsoever. And praise God, he didn't. And so then we too must endure with great patience the trials that lay before us. And those trials absolutely include enduring pain and hardship that is caused by our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I can tell you there's almost nothing more joyful than when a strained brother or sister in Christ repents and turns home. It's remarkable. It truly is. And so if you're scared of this process, and you should be, Take hope knowing that conflict can and does at times end in joyous slay the fatted calf repentance and celebration. And it's wonderful when it does. Okay, now wait a minute here. How am I supposed to know, though, if they truly repented, right? Like, what if those are crocodile tears? Well, I can't forgive them unless I know it's sincere, right? Well, it depends. What does Matthew and Luke have to say about this? Do they say if they truly repent and prove their sincerity through acts of penance, then we forgive them? No, it doesn't, does it? And so this means it's not my job, it's not your job to determine what's in each other's heart. It isn't. Whose job is that? It's the Lord's. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. So I don't try to take over the Lord's job when it comes to this. My job is simply to forgive Even if a brother or sister sins against me seven times in that day and repents, I forgive them. And why? Because even though they may have done the same thing against me seven times that day, if you think about it in terms of my own sin against God, that's small potatoes compared to that. How many times have I or you sinned against God in the same exact way, even sometimes in the same day, well beyond seven times? In verse 23, Jesus gives us a parable about this forgiveness, and in it we read of how a king, which is representing God, discovers that one of his servants, which represents us, he mishandles the money, and it ends up in a situation where he's lost 10,000 talents. And commentators differ over how much this is, somewhere between several million and a couple billion, but the point is, he's, the, this is basically the Bible's way of saying this man owed Billions, billions and billions and billions, an unfathomable amount. And so in response to this unfaithful servant who squandered the money one way or the other, the king decides to cut his losses and sell that servant and his entire family in order to try to get back at least some of the money that was lost. And so as we read, what does the servant do? He falls down and begins begging the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. But here's the thing. Who's his servant trying to kid? He couldn't make this money back, not in 100 lifetimes. There wasn't a chance in the world of him ever being able to pay back even a small fraction of what he owed this king. And yet, what does the king remarkably do? He gives him the patience he asked for, but he also gives him something more. What does he give him? He gives him pity. That's what it says right in the text. He, he pities him. He pities him so much so that he forgives the debt entirely. It, poof, it's gone. And what a picture of what God has done for you and I. Not only did God extend to us great patience, which is remarkable enough, but he also extended great pity towards us by not holding us to the debt that we just sang a minute ago that we could never afford. And he did so why? Because that is what was necessary for our forgiveness. For if he hadn't done that, it wouldn't matter how many lifetimes he gave us to pay the debt, we would only scratch the surface. And so forgiveness not only requires great patience, but secondly, it requires great pity. As we just saw in Jesus' parable, the king had great pity towards the servant. And let me ask you, does that mean that the king saw the servant as some poor, helpless little weakling? Did he look down on him with this, oh, Bless your heart, honey. No, I'll just i I pity you. Is that what it means by pity? No. Not even a little bit. It's an okay translation, but really what this word is talking about is to have great compassion for somebody else's misery. Think of like sympathy and empathy kind of combined into one. And interestingly enough, I was reading this past week about how this word pity, it's actually the word that is used by far the most to describe Jesus' earthly ministry towards sinners. It's remarkable. And so pity here means strong compassion for another person's misery, which is exactly what Jesus had for us. And so if we're going to forgive others, we have to have that same mentality too. We have to have that same attitude. We too are going to have to be like Jesus and have strong compassion for our offender's misery. Because if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to forgive them no matter how many times you chant in your head, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Your heart hasn't really forgiven them yet. If you think about this, it won't ever work until we have pity for them, until we come to relate with the offender, until we have come to have compassion for them and see them as God sees them. And so until we have that, we're not going to be able to forgive them. Sure, we might say we have forgiven them, but the truth is, we really haven't. And the reason is, is because we aren't seeing our offender as being any different than us. That makes sense? We don't see the person sinning against us as being a sinner in the same category as us. We might intellectually say, oh yes, of course, we're all sinners saved by grace. Yes, I believe that. But when somebody sins against us, it's a whole new thing, isn't it? <laughs> How do we tend to view those who sinned against us? We tend to view them as their sin. That's what they are. That's their identity. I like how one pastor put it who said this. He said, when it comes to other people's sins, we quickly turn into mean-spirited cartoon artists who draw people as caricatures. You know what that means as a caricature? You ever seen like these guys at the park who they're drawing somebody and they kind of, you know, you pay them to like draw you and make you look stupid and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of a fun thing. Well, what do they do? They exaggerate everything about the person. Is their nose a little bit big? Yes, raise my hand. Make it way bigger. Are their ears a little bit big? Make those bigger. Are their eyes a little bit too narrow? Make them more narrow. Are their teeth slightly gapped? Well, you put the Grand Canyon between those things. The same concept is true when it comes to another brother and sister in Christ when they sin against us, is it not? Did they lie to us? Well, of course, that's because they're a liar. Did they gossip about us? Well, of course, that's because they are a gossip. Let me tell you about them. All the times they've gossiped, you won't believe it. Did they get angry with us and lose their temper? Well, that's because they're an angry person. You get the idea here? We are quick to equate the one who sins against us with their sin. That's their identity. And if that's our identity, then of course we can't forgive them. Because to forgive them, in our mind, whether we think this directly or not, it's akin to saying that lying, gossiping, and fits of anger are okay. And I don't know about you, but I've read the Bible, and those things are definitely not okay. And so neither are those people who are lying, gossiping, angry people. See how this works? And yet, interestingly enough, is that how we view ourselves when it comes to our own sin? No. Not at all, is it? With ourselves, we have zero problem separating the sin from the sinner. It's not even hard. I just naturally do it, okay? Yeah, we've all lied before, but let me tell you, if you understood the circumstances of when I lied to you, yeah, I shouldn't have done it, yeah, I'm sorry, but if you understand the circumstances, then you would understand how it would have been really easy to do what I did. Let me just explain. I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before. I'm sorry I I, I blew up on you at church out in the lobby. I, I didn't get a lot of sleep. The kids have been driving me nuts. Blame shift, blame shift, blame shift, excuse after excuse after excuse, all basically to make a point. I am not my sin. You see the double standard that's going on here, though? That's what it is. It's a double standard. We have great pity on ourselves, but very little pity for others. I like how one pastor and theologian put it in a quote he quoted. Here's what it is. He says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Until we start to view those who sin against us as us, we are going to struggle to have the patience and the pity that we need to forgive them. We're not going to have it. Which I think is precisely why in the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches us to pray, he says, forgive us, how? As we forgive those who trespass against us. You see that? He connects the two together. That's the basis of me extending forgiveness towards you, is because if I want that forgiveness from God, and I claim I need it, then it just makes sense to pass that along to others who also need it. The truth is, if we're going to forgive you're going to have to come to see that you are no different than the one who sins against you. Which means we're right back to that humility thing, aren't we? Yes, we are. Sure, maybe you don't sin in the ways that others do, but I'll venture to say that I bet you sin in ways that they don't. See, we all have different vices. We all have different weaknesses. We all have different strengths. And so when you come to really understand this, when it really seeps down into your heart, it's going to enable you to start extending that same pity that was extended towards you onto others. And once you do so, and only once you do so, can you hope to endure the great cost that forgiveness requires, which leads us to our final point. Forgiveness requires patience, it requires great pity, but finally it requires great payment. In the parable here, the king completely absolves the servant of the debt, doesn't he? But does that mean the debt just disappears? where to go on the king back into the king's lap is where it went it didn't just magically poof it's gone it meant here that the king had to foot the bill and pay the cost and make no mistake that's how forgiveness works it always requires payment of some kind see when you sin against me there's two options either i pay or you pay either you suffer or i suffer And our natural inclination is to make the offender suffer, not the offendee. But if that happens, there's not going to be any sort of forgiveness whatsoever, is there? The way this works is that if you betray me, do you know what I do? You know what I'm tempted to do? What my flesh wants to do? I want to go and make sure that you pay the cost of that betrayal. How? By letting everybody know, oh, you're hanging out with that guy, huh? Well, let me tell you, You, we used to be really good friends, and I'm not saying this to say anything bad about them, but just so you know, they're a backstabbing, horrible person. Be careful. Like, that's how we get, maybe we're not that direct about it, but that's what we're doing, right? We're getting vengeance back. We're getting forced restitution. And the reason we do it is because it feels pretty good, doesn't it? Of course it does, at least for a while. However, it only feels good on our pride. Not only does it feel good on our pride being the self-righteous victim, but it feels good knowing that we are dishing back to them their just desserts. But here's the thing about this approach. Not only does it close the door on forgiveness and restoration, but it closes the door on my own heart's healing is what it actually does. See, though I'm tacking back at you, what I'm really doing is hardening my own heart, closing it off to the grace and mercy of God's healing that comes through forgiveness, Before, we said that forgiveness requires repentance. And we talked about how that's partly true, and we said we'd come back to it. Well, here we are. And we said that because even if they don't repent, here's why it's only partly true, because even if they don't repent, even if reconciliation never occurs, there's a way to experience the healing that repentance brings without them repenting. There's a way to experience the healing that comes with, re- let me say it this way there's a way to experience the healing that comes from reconciliation, even if that person doesn't repent. Does that make sense? It's kind of a convoluted way to say it. See, here's how this works. In the Bible, the repentance, if we're going to understand what repentance actually is, the best way to think about it is a handshake involving two people. See, the way this works is I reach out my hand and offer the repentance and you reach up yours, or offer the, the, I'm mixing up my words here, and offer the reconciliation and you reach up your hand in repentance and we shake and there's a mutual exchange, a transaction that occurs, which is reconciliation. Now, let me ask you a question. Can I complete a handshake by myself? Try it. It doesn't work. It's weird. It doesn't work. You need somebody else to do a handshake. And so while I can't complete the transaction, this handshake on my own, tell me this. Can I do everything in my power to initiate that handshake? Yeah, I walk up to you. I put my hand up. But let me ask you, if I'm going to do that, is there some work that's going to have to be done in my heart before I do so? Yeah, it's the work of forgiveness. I'm going to have to already be at a place where I have forgiven you in my heart so that I can forgive you in my actions before you and reconciliation can happen. It saddens me to say that I've talked with a lot of Christians who they look at the conditions for repentance found in Luke 17, one through four. And what they do with these verses is they turn it into a justification to not raise their hand toward their brothers and sisters in Christ who have sinned against them. They use it as a justification to harbor resentment in their hearts towards them. And boy, is that a dangerous thing? As Hebrews 12:5 says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled." When it comes to forgiveness or reconciliation, whatever we want to call it here, it's all kind of one in the same package and it comes to my side of the equation, do you realize this? It looks the same regardless of whether there's repentance in the offendee or not. Does that make sense? When it comes to forgiveness and my side of the handshake, the actions look exactly the same whether or not the hand comes back up to greet me and shake, doesn't it? It does. My hand goes up. If I get a hand back, great, wonderful. Slay the fatted calf, let's celebrate. If not, what do I do? My hand hangs there. Yeah, it gets tiresome. Hold your hand out like this for about three to to four minutes. You're going to get tired just from that. But yet that's what we are called to do. Yes, the outward actions must and will be different if there is no repentance. But when it comes to my heart and doing the forgiving work that needs to be done in there, there is essentially no difference. For even if the offer of forgiveness is rejected, I must first bring my heart to a place of forgiveness where I can offer it with sincerity, without a root of bitterness, as Hebrew says. And doing so has nothing to do with the repentance of the one who sinned against me, does it? Nothing. But if I don't see it this way, one way or the other, I'm going to lash out with strikes and counterstrikes against the one who first struck out against me. And there's a million different active and passive ways that we can do this. But if I do, not only will this prevent forgiveness from happening, but it will prevent my own heart from experiencing the healing that it desperately needs as I become, as Hebrews talks about, defiled by bitterness and resentment. Sometimes we are tempted to selfishly forgive and forget, right? When no repentance has been offered. But other times, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to retaliate against those who harm us. We are tempted to say, vengeance is mine, saith Zach Broom. But is vengeance mine? No, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I'm not the Lord. And so, if I refuse to have great patience towards those who sin against me, what I'm really doing is engaging in high handed rebellion against the king who sits upon the throne. I'm trying to walk in there and sit on his throne chair and say, you know what? In my infinite knowledge and in my perfect justice, I'm going to dish this out in this situation because I know what's best, Lord. What a joke. What a, hip- what a hypocritical joke, especially considering the great patience and pity that was extended towards me. In the last part of this parable, we find a shocking conclusion, which is the servant who was forgiven of this unpayable debt, he goes out and he starts strangling a fellow servant of his who owed him a minor debt. And then what does he do with them? Throws him into prison until he can repay it. And when his fellow servants see this, They are rightly disturbed, and so they go and report it to the king. And when the king hears of this, he is enraged. He's infuriated. And so he promptly summons the unforgiving servant before him, and he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then in verse 34, it goes on to say, And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he could repay all that was owed to him. What a terrifying and disheartening picture of how our sovereign Lord views unforgiveness. And yet, how often are we that unforgiving servant? Even though we've been forgiven of so much, What do we do? We turn around and quickly act in vengeance, not justice. That's what it is. It's vengeance. It's retaliation against our fellow servants. Though we've been given so much mercy and grace, we often have so little for each other. But as Christ warns us, if this is the case, then know that the King of heaven will not sit idly by. For he will step in and he will enact, as we read here, the fiercest of judgments. His justice will move. What kind of justice? Is Jesus speaking of sending a son and daughter of the king to hell? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he just talking about discipline? Well, that depends. If you are truly a child of God, then no, the fires of hell can never touch you. But the scourging of the Lord absolutely can it absolutely can and will and this certainly does happen to those who are unforgiving children here's what hebrews 12:6 says for those whom the lord loves being a child of god what does he do he disciplines and every and he scourges every son whom he receives does seem kind of strong <laughs> but that's the way our lord handles us doesn't he That word scourges is a serious thing. If you know what scourging is, that's not a timeout, all right? This is serious stuff. And so the question is, are you harboring a root of bitterness in your heart towards another believer? If so, then beware of Christ's warning. For as Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. Yes, it's going to look differently, but make no mistake, there will be discipline and it will be severe as scourging at times. At the same time, also be warned that if you cannot and will not extend the same forgiveness that you claim to have received from God, then you very well might be proving you've never actually received it at all. Not that you've lost it, right? You can't lose it. But if you never had it at all and you will not extend forgiveness towards others around you, you might be proving that you have an unredeemed heart, period. And that's the problem. And so if you be a child of hell who is unwilling to forgive, know that your unwillingness to forgive shows your true unforgiven nature. Or if you are a child of the king who is unwilling to forgive, know that you invite the severest of disciplines of a holy and all-powerful God upon yourself. Matthew six fourteen through 15 says this, But if you forgive others' trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither then will your father forgive your trespasses. There's so much here I wish we had time to look at when it comes to how God disciplines his children. But we don't, sadly. And though this discipline does not affect our eternal destination, it affects a lot of things. It affects our prayers being heard. It affects our worship being accepted. And it even affects the blessings in this life and in the life to come as we store up rewards and treasures in heaven. And so we must and we will engage in the difficult work of forgiveness. And why? Because that's precisely what Christ did for us. We said before that forgiveness requires payment. And so for us, forgiveness requires requires the suffering that comes from refusing to pay back. The agony of loving somebody after they've betrayed us. And if you've never had to do that, it's agony. It gets better over time, but it's hard. We also endure the pain of being slapped and the anxiety we feel when we turn to expose the other cheek. And yet, we do so. We pay the cost of relational forgiveness because that's precisely what Christ did for us. When, as we're going to sing in a moment, he paid it all. On the cross, Christ endured with great patience the sin of mankind as he paid sin's debt. On the cross, he did so with great pity, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Remarkable. And because he did this, and only because he did this, can we rejoice that the payment has been made in full. And it has been made by his precious blood, which was spilt in order to pay the debt that you and I could never afford. And because of this, as we sang a moment ago, we sing, Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do you know the mercy and the forgiveness of the king? Has it began to transform your heart to be a heart that extends that same forgiveness onto those who sin against you? Or are you still clinging to your bloodlust and need for vengeance? Are you a spiritual Hatfield or McCoy who's ready to go to war over the smallest things, even the stealing of a pig? If so, know that you will never experience the deep healing that forgiveness brings. You just won't. But if you do, if you do obey Christ's command and chase after biblical forgiveness and conflict resolution, it's going to hurt at first, but it will bring healing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, a difficult text, not because it's difficult to understand, but because it's difficult to do. And so, Father, we just pray that you would help us now, that that you would enable us to forgive others just as we have been forgiven. Father, there are some here today, no doubt, that can't forgive others because they've never been forgiven. And so, Lord, we don't ask that they would return to law and strict uh, morality of any kind, but that they would look to the cross, that they would gaze deeply into the eyes of our Savior who gave up everything so that we could experience your mercy. And so, Father, we ask that there would be repentance from them, that they would turn to Christ, their Savior, and receive full forgiveness, not partial, which is made up then by their works or their religiosity, but full forgiveness, which comes entirely by your grace through faith in the blood of your Son. So, Father, I pray for the Christian today who's harboring resentment. Lord, help them to hear the warning of this text. Help them to spare themselves from the scourging that you may bring upon them in this life. Help them to recognize, Lord, that we lay up treasures in heaven. And how we live now determines what treasures we do lay up. So help us to be faithful, for you are the faithful one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.